Thank you all for joining. So this week, we've got a really, really exciting one. We have an exciting one every week, but I'm, I'm particularly excited about this week. We have uh, Visakan Virasamy. He is coming to hey us yo. from Singapore. He is a writer. He's a thinker. He's a tweeter. He's a YouTuber. And like I said in the kind of intro email to this post, I find this really interesting parallel with you know, when we, when we sort of have movies that are set in the future, they're often shot in Singapore. And I think if we were like <laughs> to pick like a thinker of the future, like a person's like career of the future, we should, we should shoot them of Visa. So <laughs> Visa, thanks for joining us. Cheers, man. It's fun to be here. Yeah. So the way we usually do it is we basically just pepper you with questions for the first half and have a conversation. And at the end, we have, we have folks kind of joining in on the questions and all this stuff. So feel free to put your questions in the chat or in the Q&A functionality. But I guess to start, I'm curious to hear like, what, what was your journey from, I, I first found out about you from Twitter. And what was your journey mm-hmm. from kind of like not having a large following on the internet to having one? And, and how, how, did you, how did you decide to kind of go full time on, on being a creator? Interesting. I mean, I have always wanted to participate in some way so you know when i was a child my favorite things were books and video games and in even even then i think i wanted to you know i got so much value out of it and i felt like i felt obliged to give back in some way so i i never i never felt like a like a passive consumer i always felt like you know i enjoy so many books I go to the library every week, borrow my siblings and my mom's cards and I would go and borrow a huge ton of books. And I was always like, ah, wouldn't it be nice someday to be able to, to have my book in the library and kind of like circle of life, give back to that process. And then when I discovered the internet, I was about maybe seven or eight years old and I discovered these forums, like these niche video game forums that were about games that none of my friends played. So it was like the strangers on the internet who have this common interest with me. And I was like, oh my God, I have to get involved. I have to reply. And so I've always kind of just been posting a lot. And, you know, when when things come along, so when I went to school, some of my classmates had blogs. And so I wanted a blog as well. Uh, Even before that, I had like my personal website with like, I had like link, uh, like uh, games and jokes and and a guest book, like just very plain stuff. Are you talking like GeoCities? Yeah, around that era, I think I used this uh, provider called Freewebs, but it's all, it's all that kind of same thing. I probably might yeah. have, I don't think I had a GeoCity site myself, but I had friends who did. I think I might have. I tried, experimented with a bunch of providers and I liked Freewebs, which I haven't, I think is gone now. And um, then blogs came around. My friends were, when friends were posting on blogs every day and I also, you know, back, I think that was kind of like before Facebook, that was how we kept in touch with each other's daily lives. We would be like, oh, today I went to school and then after school, I went to this guy's house and we watched TV, that kind of literally like status a diary. Yeah, yeah. And it's like a shared diary and you can comment on your friends and your friends can comment on you. And so that was very natural for me. And I remember, I think when when live journal came around so like my, my early blog service provider was this site called diary x and diary x was like it's not as big as blogger or the rest it was like run by some guy in his house and his server crashed i think and the whole thing like i lost my entire blog i'm still sad oh, about no. yeah and then so i moved to live journal and on live journal there are these i think they called them pages which are like community portals of some kind where multiple people from multiple accounts can post to the page and there was one Singaporean live journal account 
a page. I think it's called like SG underscore LJRS. So like Singaporean live journalist. And so I was like, oh, cool. You know, like here's a bunch of people who I don't know in real life, but they are, they are from my city, my country. And, you know, let's write something for them. And so I had this very primitive, like, social commentary it was like you know hey guys singapore is so so great in so many ways but you know it's such a it can be such a pressure cooker city and we're also stressed all the time can't we be nicer to each other something like that and it got like i think 15 comments which at the time blew my mind i was like holy yeah. shit there are all these people who are engaging with me and so from then on i think i felt like okay i want to do more of that and so i started my own I had a separate blog called, I mean, it was still my name. It was my old username. And it was like a visa as a hero.wordpress.com, I think. And mm-hmm. I would post mostly social commentary, stuff about the news. Like, so back then, that, this was about 20, 2008, maybe 2009. I was like in junior college. And I was just eager to write about the news. There was like one specific news event that kind of radicalized me where I felt like the the, the statistics that were reported in the papers were kind of misleading. And so I was like, oh, no, the, the news is misleading us. Look at these stats. And that got a ton of traffic and people were like reposting it on other blogs and stuff. And I, I just really enjoyed that experience of participating in that wider world. And then, you know, Quora came along and I was in Facebook groups and I was posting on Quora a lot. And then uh, in 2012, Cora had this thing where when I was just answering questions and I was just answering questions about stuff that I knew about and they made me like one of their so I think they gave like probably like 500 or 800 people this this like this badge like Cora Top Writer 2013 and now that was another thing that was like oh my god there's like an international audience that's interested in what I have to say it's not just my friends it's not just my city and so it's all these things that kind of added up like I was already very online I was already commenting a lot all over the place you know Reddit wherever and when did I, you realize that you could you could go from doing this for fun and as a way mm-hmm. of self-expression to actually mm-hmm. making it your full-time job because you have had full-time jobs before yeah. right so yeah so my my first job was my first like serious job so i mean when i was still a student i would work in like as hotel staff and stuff to to get some extra cash but my first real job after i left the military was i was hired by a software company in Singapore and the CEO, the founder, he found my blog through one of my posts about Singapore that went viral and he invited me to meet for coffee and he tried to hire me. And the funny story there is actually that I didn't say yes on the spot. I had actually wanted to, my plan was to become a flight steward with Singapore Airlines and then kind of like I had this dream of I'm going to travel to all these cities around the world and then like you have like a day off in or like like some amount of time between when you land and then when you get your flight back, right? So I was like, I'm gonna yeah. go all around, I'm gonna go to cafes around the world and write. Like that was my 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 plan. But then I didn't even get through like the first round of selection. The first round of selection is super arbitrary. Like a lot of people who become flight attendants in Singapore, they tell you that oh, you know, you gotta go like three or four times to get past the first round because they just like okay, huh. there's like a, several hundred people here. We're just gonna ask you to say a few words and then we'll just you know, it's kind of it's very easy to fail that very arbitrary selection. And so I failed that. And then uh, I had just gotten married. So I needed a job. I needed money. So I called my, my, the guy who became my boss. I called him again. I was like, hey, I need a job. And so, I mean, he wanted, and, yeah. and so he's like, yeah, you can start tomorrow. And, uh, you know, he, so that was, you know, I was familiar with software. Like, you know, when I was, a, when I was younger, I did care, you know, I, so when I was making my own website, I cared about HTML and I was interested in JavaScript a little bit, interested in 
like I, I would borrow the books from the library and like flip through them and try the hello world kind of stuff. But I, it's just, I don't know, it never quite clicked for me at the right time or in the right way. And so I didn't get very deep into that. But uh, yeah, so I got into a software company as a content marketing guy. So basically I was going to be running the company's blog and everything else to figure out, you know, customer acquisition, traffic, getting traffic, stuff like that. And so I, and I didn't think that I would last very long because when I, when I met the team, they were all like super high functioning, super, you know, like prestigious universities. I didn't even go to university, but like all my colleagues were like from, you know, like from Brown and CMU and stuff like that. And I didn't think I would last more than a year, but I ended up staying there for five and a half years. It was a great Ooh. work environment. I learned a lot. You know, it challenged me as a writer as well. I think it forced me to be kind of more rigorous and structured and more sensitive to, to like casual readers because I mm. think, so I have friends who are like, I would say from my blogging days or from my music days when I was a teenager, I was playing in a band and just the, the kind of intelligence commentary class of people who like to write a lot. I think if like you don't have a kind of a marketing background and you know, the I would say the, the video equivalent of that is like uh, writing for television. So there are people who, you know, like Steven Spielberg used to write, used to work for TV and he didn't really like it, but he's in, in like interviews and stuff. He talks about how, you know, it, it teaches you discipline in a way because you have right. to get episodes out regularly. And there's, there's stuff that you learn from that process. I know there's also like, you know, there's, there's like, you can find this in a, in a lot of successful writers. I think they say things like they used to work for a magazine or they used to work for some publication where you just have to be or like former journalists, that kind of thing. You have this thing where you learn all these skills about having to ship on a schedule and be consistent. And right. you, know, you can't be too indulgent. You have to be sensitive to the constraints of the, the medium. I do think I learned a lot of stuff about that. And, uh, but you know, while I was enjoying my job, I think as far, I, I enjoyed it as far as I could. Like, so I did like going to work. I did like my colleagues, like lunchtime conversations were great, but I didn't, you know, I enjoyed my work as much as possible, but fundamentally I'm like, ah, I'm helping to sell software. You know, it's not, it's not something that I'm like super passionate about. And like, so even, even before I got my job, which was to pay the bills, I was like, I wanted to write my own thing. So right. I would always end the, all around the world. That was the dream. Yeah, exactly. That, that was always the dream. And, you know, so even while I was working, what I would do is I had a personal writing project for myself. So what I skipped over was I, I, I did get sick of the Singapore blog, like, like political social blogging scene. And I don't, I don't think that's specific to Singapore. I think it's, it's like a political commentary thing. I think all over the, like oh, on right. Twitter now, I can see it. I see it in India. I see it in the States. It's like everywhere. If you, if you kind of become like very invested in discussing politics with other people. Like there's this, there's this polarization that happens. It gets very intense. It's very, you know, people get into very intense fights about trivial things even like just, and I, I got very caught up in that cycle and I didn't like it. And so I left and I actually, I actually deleted my, I think I archived my blog at the time because I didn't want to keep doing that. And so I started like a personal writing project. I called it uh, a thousand word vomits. I think at some point I read, uh, it might have been the war of art or something else along those lines that had this idea of if you know, have you heard the parable of the pottery class? No. So the parable of the the pottery the parable of the pottery class is that so it's, it's a fictional example, but like so there's a pottery class and the the instructor divides the class in half and he tells oh, half yes, the I class right you're going to be graded according to the best possible pot you can make and the other half of the class he tells them you're going to be graded by the number of pots that you make. 
And so the first half of the class, they try their very best to make the perfect pot. And the second half of the class, they're just making lots and lots of pots. And the funny thing is that all of the best pots came from the second class because yeah. they because each time you make a new pot, you learn something about the mistakes. And if you keep trying to improve the first thing that you're making, you don't get to kind of learn from your mistakes. You're just kind of constantly reworking. Whereas if you keep making new things, each new thing gets made with your new sensibilities and understandings. So when I read that, I'm like, huh, okay. So if I want to be a good writer, I have to write a lot. And so yeah. I'm like, how can I come up with a project that will have me writing a lot. And so I decided to just do this thing where, okay, I want to write a million words. It sounds dramatic and, and epic and, and yet it does sound achievable like because yeah. I have written so much already. And if I just keep going every day for years, eventually I'll get there. So I started this project. Actually, I started this before I got my job. But so after I got my job, I was like, you know, I've like my, my job involves, you know, it wasn't crazy working hours. It's like reasonable working hours, but it, it was very exciting. It's a startup. It felt like, you know, it just felt like, that everybody brought a lot of themselves to the to the table. And so I, I was always thinking about work, even when I was not at work, stuff like that. And so it was challenging for me to do much personal writing while I was working. I did do it as right. much as I could, but it, it still felt like, you know, it's I'm using like 20% of my brain, maybe all my time. Yeah. But I would write for myself on all my commutes. And on retrospect, I think that was, you know, I'm I'm almost, I'm actually quite impressed at my past self for, that, that kind of a bit, a bit of foresight, a bit of dedication, right? Like the sense of, okay, even though I have a job, like I'm going to make sure that I write for myself as much as possible. And I think now I'm at about like a 780 something, almost 800 out of a thousand reps of my wow. million word writing project. That's crazy. Yeah. By the way, this lot. writing project, it reminds mm-hmm. me of when I was at Andreessen. So when I first started at Andreessen, I didn't know how to tweet. I like didn't, I wasn't right. good at tweeting. And this was a set skill a goal set to do a million tweets. Well, my manager, Andrew Chen, uh-huh. <laughs> was like, every week you have to write a tweet storm and publish it. And like, mm-hmm. we would check in on a weekly basis and he'd be like, where is your tweet storm? Like you need to post a tweet storm. So I had to, yeah, it was like the pottery class. I just had to get my reps in and, and tweet yeah, a lot. Right. Like as a, it had to first be a task. And then once I got good at it, I started enjoying it naturally. Yeah. But it didn't come naturally. So if you guys are trying to get good at Twitter, just like put out a ton of stuff and keep iterating mm-hmm. and see what works. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's absolutely it. It's it reminds so, me of uh, the, the mm-hmm. stuff you're doing with YouTube now too, with like you have Yeah, it's the same video. thing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's it's that's like my process for learning anything now. Like it's just do a lot of stuff. And I th- I mean, a part of it is I guess it fits my personality, which is that I I can keep going for a lot, for a lot of things, but I'm not super kind of a, I, I'm not super great at kind of like doing very minute tinkering. I can, like with, with writing, I can, because I've done so much writing that I've gotten kind of good at it naturally. But generally, you know, anything that's like, you know, so stuff that's like bookkeeping, accounting, making sure that everything's kind of balanced. Like I'm pretty bad at that unless I'm doing something that's many reps. And so, yeah, I find that if I don't, if I'm not perfectionist about it and I just kind of produce a lot of stuff, like it just, I now have a body of work and a ton of experience that tells me that if I just do a lot of something, I get better at it. And yeah, it just seems, it seems once you, once you do it, it almost seems self-evident. And then it's, it's surprising when other people don't already know that, but I guess it's one of those things. I yeah. think it's really but, hard because mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. this idea that I publish something and I'm going to be judged based on it. 
and right. people will stop paying attention to me and stop liking me perhaps at some like whatever, mm-hmm. like irrational level if my thing is bad. And so I need right. to like work really hard to make sure my thing is good because it's only downhill from here if I, and it's like the thing that's so easy to forget is like no one remembers the first thing you did. But, like right. you become known gradually as you get better. It's like, mm-hmm. what was the first like book that Stephen King wrote? Maybe it was a really good, I don't know, but like, yeah, I assume yeah. it was probably one that's like one of his lesser known works. Yeah, you know? probably. And you know, I've even had, you know, some guy mentioned me in, I think his, his newsletter or his Substack or something. And he was like, I, I, I once encountered, so I encountered Visa on Quora, which is like 2013. And then, you know, I read his blog for a bit, but it wasn't very interesting. And so I kind of just stopped reading it. And then I rediscovered him in like 2018, 2019. And now he's like, oh, he's Twitter famous and all these things. And I'm like, that's cool, actually. You know, it's, it's nice to know that you know, it's like, it, it is true that if let's say you put out bad stuff consistently, <laughs> if you're consistently bad, people will kind of temporarily like downgrade you in their mind as, uh, and I don't, I'm not going to listen to this guy. But, you know, people do change their perceptions quite easily if you get better at something. Like, and if, as long as you subsequently get better, mm-hmm. uh, and you might not need to win over the, the initial audience, right? So the, 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 the possible audience in the world is like, infinite it's like freaking massive nobody is able to conceptualize if you think you understand how many people there are in the world it's like you're wrong right yeah and yeah you can always find new people to talk to you can always just keep going and yeah it's it 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 can be fun to cross certain thresholds and milestones and then go back to your like hometown crowd like especially like your your school friends when you're young and then they won't believe that like where you are which is fun Uh, i honestly yeah, I'd love to hear about the the zero to one of like mm-hmm. getting good at something and really enjoying it and enjoying the process mm-hmm. and learning in public to then mm-hmm. how do you actually start monetizing that? I think that's the part right. of being an online creator that is probably the most challenging going from zero to one of monetization. Actually, so th- that's, that's interesting because I'm not sure I entirely agree. So it's like, a, it's, you know, okay, I mean, okay, I'll answer the question directly first, which is that, when did I start? It was like, so my first thing was I started a Patreon, which was around November last year, I think. Or was it the year before? Oh, that was before your of, Gumroad? Yeah, I did my Patreon okay. first. So, and that was like, I saw a tweet by, I think, Stephanie Herbert, Herbert, I don't know if you know her. Mm-hmm. And she she was tweeting about how she had met people who... Her tweet was something like, you know, it's sad how people from like middle class or lower middle class backgrounds are so nervous and anxious about asking for help or asking for compensation with things because like wealthy people feel comfortable asking for like for, I mean, the way they ask is a bit different. They ask like, like, can you comp this? That kind of thing. Like they just kind of expect if you're going to speak at some event, they expect you to pay for the tickets and stuff like that. And she just, when I read the tweet, I was like, huh. Like, you know, like I feel kind of guilty and ashamed about asking for money in some way, but you know, like something about that tweet just made me feel like, fuck it. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it. Like, yes, like if, if people decide otherwise, yeah. And then, so I started a Patreon because of that tweet. And then I think when I started it, I got like maybe 10 or 15 patrons. And then like, yeah, once you have, once you have a few, but you know, the reason, you know, like most people, when they start their patrons, Patreons, they, you know, the vast majority of people who start Patreons don't have any patrons. And, and that's mm-hmm. because they didn't do the work of building an audience beforehand. And I would say that, you know, so, so there, is a, there is a kind of decision point of do I start trying to monetize? 
But I would say that it's actually way harder to get from I'm just a hobbyist to even before you monetize, there's like this phase of I'm taking this seriously. I think in The War of Art, Stephen, Stephen Pressfield describes it as going pro. So mm. I would say that while I monetized in like 2018, I had gone pro like, I mean, it was, a, it was a, I guess it's a spectrum. It's not like a, any one single decision, but I had kind of gone pro by mm, 2015, 2016. Like I had already kind of decided at some level that this is what I want to do with my life, which is even if I never make any money from it, like I, I want to have a body of work. I want to have a really good blog. Or, or it doesn't necessarily have to be a blog. It could be, a, back then I didn't have a YouTube channel, but it could be the YouTube channel. It could be anything. It's just, I want a body of work that's really, really good, that fulfills my own taste that, and I want to talk to lots of people about it so that they, you know, it's not necessarily, I know what's good and other people don't, but it's like, you know, it's a, I think of it as, as a conversation almost like, you know, a, a funny thing I sometimes hear from people is like, how can you be so public? That's so arrogant. Like, how do you, why do you think so highly of yourself and your thoughts that you should be publishing stuff in public? And I actually think of it the other way around. I'm like, my mind and my thinking is flawed to some degree that I cannot appreciate from the inside. So the only way for me to improve my thinking is to take it out of my head and put it in public so mm. that people can criticize it and point out to me what's wrong. And then I'll be like, oh yeah, you're right. I didn't see that. Thanks for helping me fix that. And then I correct it and I... And the, the next version of it is better and, and that happens over and over again. Like, in fact, one of my early blog posts around like 2011, I wrote a blog post and it was so cringe. It was titled, uh, How to Save Singapore. And it was like I, I, like, I had this grand theory about what is wrong with society and how people are, you know, not sufficiently creative and not supporting the arts and that's what's wrong with everything. And I bet that people would do this. And like my comment section just eviscerated me. They're like, oh, you know, you're so presumptuous. You're so pompous. Everything is wrong and blah, blah, blah. And like, but the thing is, when I read that, I didn't think, oh no, I'm a failure. I, I shouldn't, I should stop. I'm like, okay, like everything these people are saying is right. So what happens if I integrate all of this into the right thing and then I keep going? And yeah, those people, some of those people, I don't know if they've ever seen me again. Some of those people are now my friends. You know, it's just people don't really seem to expect that a person who screws up publicly will, like they kind of expect you to just give up, I think. Or, or they don't think about it at all. But if you, if you kind of persist, but anyway, yeah, so I wanted to build the audience even if there was no money involved. I decided to start the Patreon because I, you know, partially because of Stephanie's tweet and partially because I realized that, you know, by that point, I had already had many good conversations with people. I had already had people kind of DMing me and telling me that, hey, I read your post and it helped me through a bunch of stuff. Right. You know, like, so in that sense, I came to realize that the work that I had done, like all, and so there's, there's, there's a necessary kind of a separation of your like personal self and like the creative self, I think, and like your, your body of work. And my body of work had been worked on to the point where it was helping people. And the thing that was limiting me from kind of uh, scaling that body of work and making it better was my own kind of emotional attachment to, I don't want to ask people for money. You know, I don't want to look like I'm a beggar or something like that. Like there's all those kind of thoughts and limiting beliefs. And what I had to confront was that, you know, in a way those things were like, so, so there's, there's, if you imagine there's, there's me, there's my body of work. And then there is like the positive outcomes that I, my work could achieve if it were better and bigger, but it hasn't happened yet. And the thing that's stopping my work from becoming great is me kind of artificially limiting its growth by being afraid to ask for help or being afraid to get people involved. Right. And yeah, so eventually I just, 
I had to, I, you know, I, I reflected on it for a while and I talked to a bunch of people and I was just like, yeah, okay, I should just do it. Like, what's going to happen? Like, maybe, like, some people mock me for it, but, like, I decided, I guess, that the benefit of having other people see the work and, and benefit from that, like, that is worth more than any negative outcome. Totally. Totally. So that was that. And then, yeah. And then, so I had my Patreon and that, you know, it wasn't enough to pay all my bills, but it paid like, like half my, a quarter of my bills around there, something like that. And that gave me, I would say, so it didn't give me like pure, like full creative freedom. I still don't entirely, you know, I would say I'm about 70% there, but like the, 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 so the, the goal has always been pure, full creative freedom. And I would say I'm like 70 to 80% there. And, but once I was about, 30% there, like I could see the horizon. I could see where, where like it's, it's some distance off, but I can see it. And once I can see it, like the whole game changes. But like, so yeah. from that, that zero to 30%, that's the harrowing part. That's the, what if I think people like this stuff, but I'm wrong, you know, like always, like you'd hear all the time from people who like, uh, you know, they, maybe they're a good chef and people compliment them on their cooking. And so they feel like, okay, I should start a restaurant. But like a restaurant is a whole different thing than preparing a nice meal for your friends, right? You have to yeah. do marketing for the store. You have to get walk in traffic. You have to, you can't just cook one meal at a time. Like you have, it's on schedule. You have to move, fast. like there's all these things. You have to manage relationships with your suppliers and all its regulations and all that stuff. So like, it's, I think it's similar for being a creative in a sense. Like you can, you know, you can tell a joke and people be like, hi, you're funny that doesn't mean you can do like a stand-up special that like entertain like a thousand paying guests for an hour, right? Like, so there are intermediate steps to, to kind of validate that hypothesis or belief. Right. And so, yeah, so part of it is build an audience, get lots of positive responses from people. I think I had, I had at least a couple of dozen people at some point who were like, if you wrote a book, I would buy it. Like, you know, so you got you to accumulate that from people so that you know that and you can, you can kind of write it down if you want so that when you do have a book, you can reach out to them like, hey, remember this? Like, I do have a book now, right? Yeah, yeah. And, some, and maybe like some of them will be like, oh, you know, I'm just trying to be supportive. I didn't really, I mean, they won't say that, but like they yeah. might be thinking, oh shit, you know, I told this guy. But I would say it's like- It's just an expression, okay? <laughs> it was a yeah. Just a, a generic compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. When you said that but you're would, about 70, when, when you said you're about 70 or 80% of the way there to full creative mm -hmm. freedom, does that mm -hmm. mean that your creative pursuits sort of support you 70 to 80% mm -hmm. of the way there and then like other sources of traditional income? Yeah, so, my, uh, so I, I currently do consulting. And the cool thing is, that I, so I mean, because my, my background is in like content marketing, software marketing, you know, SEO and, and all that stuff, which I'm good at, but I don't, I don't enjoy super much but the cool thing is that you know i find that each successive client i've taken on has been more and more aligned with like my personal values and and beliefs so i mean in the context of marketing for example i believe in playing a very 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 long game which is not which is kind of at odds with people who need to get short-term results and i do know how to get short-term results but like you know it's it's I'm, I'm not a fan i'm not a fan of like, you know, if I help some company and then they get some results for the, this quarter and then like two years later, they shut down because they didn't have the right product. Then it's like, you know, I made some money, but I spent a few months kind of working on something that doesn't kind of last. And so I've always yeah. been very much about like whatever work I do, I want it to last as long as possible. 
And but so what lately I've been doing kind of um personal consulting with individuals. So I can't charge as much money for that, but it's it's less work as well. Like it's kind of it's it's almost like chatting with a friend, but you know, because you're paying me and you're taking this seriously, I'm gonna sit down with you and get very rigorous about you know, going through your resume, going through your your blog, your, your Twitter profile, like helping to optimize all of those things. So if I wanted to, I could kind of make a living doing just that kind of consulting. Like I have a bunch of people who ask to be clients and I'm like, no, I'm writing a book, <laughs> come back in three months or whatever. So I am kind of blessed at this point where I'm not doing any work that I don't want to do, but I'm not yet kind of completely free to do any random I mean I can but like there's there's like opportunity cost and stuff so I'm still right. I'm still kind of building out the the creative uh, pipeline what am I saying the financial pipeline like you know uh, like I'm so I'm like ramen profitable but I'm not like super comfortable like you know my 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 washing machine is starting to make weird noises. <laughs> and like, it's those, you know, I don't make enough money that I can comfortably take care of all of my expenses. And my wife and I currently, we don't have kids, but if we want to have kids, we might, you know, like we would have more financial needs. So that stuff is, it's a, it's a concern. You know, I, I would, I still fundamentally care more about like my, my core game is that creative long, long game creative thing. And my wife knows that. So we have that understanding. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm still in that kind of, uh, there's, there's some tension, there's some, and it's a good tension, I think. I think, you know, if, like, I, I can imagine, like, uh, if you're born wealthy, for example, and you don't have any of these constraints, like, maybe maybe the constraints are a good thing. Like, like similar to how working with, like, working in a company that has deliverables forces you to make your thinking clearer and your writing clearer. Like, I think there's also something about, you know, having to care about money a little bit, at least for a while, I think it's a good thing. And I, and this, I, I, mean, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I, I expect that in a few years, I won't have to worry about money anymore, like in the specifics. Like, so now I still think about, okay, my bills are this, you know, like, should I buy this this month or should I wait until something else? But I think one, there will be a threshold where I don't have to care about those things anymore. And then, you know, like if my Patreon crosses some threshold, my ebook sales crosses some threshold, then I think the new challenge, which I will be very excited about is once I kind of have am receiving more money than I personally need, then I can start thinking about, okay, how can I deploy this money like for other creative things that I want to see? So like, you know, funding other creators, right? Or creating mm. some kind of, of like, you know, I joke that it's like the extended cinematic universe of this kind of thing, like maybe. And then when I start thinking that, I find that actually there are things that I could be doing that I'm not currently doing that don't, that I, in my mind, I think it requires money, but it actually right. doesn't. Like I could do like a monthly show and tell. Yeah, exactly. So that's yeah. that's exciting. So that's that's what I'm kind of currently excited about. But I don't know if I if I've prop- adequately addressed the question of when do you know or how do you monetize? I think kind of the TLDR of that is produce a lot of work such that you have a very high and high you know you have a very high very strong sense of what your best work is. Shop it around, talk to lots of people until like there's a certain kind of audience writing fit that you need to have where you know, if you've, whether you're writing about like, it doesn't really matter what you're writing about, but like there needs to be some kind of audience writing fit. And when you have that, and when you have a bunch of people all telling you that, dude, this thread should be a book, man. Like, you know, when you have like a bunch of people saying that, then you can have some, con- and I mean, you shouldn't, you shouldn't like quit your job when you still have bills to pay and then do that. So like, you know, the whole time I was working, I was saving as much as I could so that when I left my job, I had like a year's six months to a year's runway to do whatever I want. And if that didn't work out, I could start working. I could find another job, 
and work yeah. that for another three, four years and then plan my next kind of one year runway to do. So I was mentally prepared to do that. I was mentally prepared to work five years, take like a year off for writing, find that, you know, some people are interested, but it's not enough to kind of take off and then work another job and then try it again. And I was willing to do that like, you know, indefinitely until I die. Like it's just, it's because I, I want so badly to, to have that kind of creator audience relationship. And I'm, I'm, I was lucky enough that my first attempt paid off, sort of. Yeah, yeah. When, when, when we, I think we should bring up audience questions pretty soon. But one last thing I wanted to ask before we do that is like, how do you choose what platforms to invest in, both in terms of growing audience and creating content for, but then also for monetization? Like what is, mm-hmm. you, like for, for example, YouTube seems to be like a, a very intentional and kind of strategic choice that you made. Right. But, but like, you know, you're on Gumroad, you're on Patreon, mm-hmm. you're on Twitter a lot. Like what, I'm curious how you make those decisions. Right. So I, I like to try everything. So I like to, uh-huh. you know, there was a period of time where I was writing a lot of Facebook essays on my status updates. And I, I still have my blog, right? And I, I have a tiny letter, which has like, like so I, I try, I like to try a little bit of everything. And, you know, so even with my Twitter account, I had a Twitter account all along, like since 2008 or so, right? And like, I was tweeting a little bit here and there. <laughs> and I think around, so again, when I, when I left my job, I wasn't like, I'm going to tweet a lot and then become a Twitter famous person or whatever. It was just, I'm going to publish as much as I can on every medium and like see what takes off basically. Mm. So that's my, that's my, my approach. It's like, I don't know in advance what's going to work. So I just try something, everything. And I think around 20, maybe 15 or so, 2016-ish, like several people seem to all independently converge on Twitter, like from different backgrounds. So some people were like bloggers who were on Twitter. Some people like, you know, I, I have... I wrote about this somewhere. I can't remember if it's like a blog post or if it's like in someone else's interview or something. But it's very interesting how there's like this crew of like Twitter gang and they're all from different backgrounds, but they all had roughly the same realization at roughly the same time that there's something magical about Twitter in that you can really reply to anyone anywhere in the world who has a Twitter account. And like that, you know, so I ended up in SF because of my Twitter friends who invited me over. And, you know, like, I was also blogging at the same time, but like people weren't reading my blog the way they were replying to me on Twitter. And, you know, I imagine maybe TikTok might be something like that, but that is like, you know, I I have an account. I haven't tried making content for it, but that's kind of, it's not really my, my, I don't feel comfortable with it, I guess. So I guess that's another variable. So I try everything and, but I don't force myself to try and, and fit a medium that doesn't feel like the right, like I don't feel any resonance with like I have an email newsletter but I I couldn't I don't know if I could be someone who sends out an email newsletter every week like mine is like every every other month or so but you know maybe uh-huh. if I got like a ton of replies to a newsletter I might feel like compelled to do it more regularly so it's it's kind of it's kind of feedback oriented so that's that's just something about Twitter that I found very very engaging yeah. and but you know I did feel like around I think last year or so I started to feel like I was getting diminishing returns on Twitter, sort of. Like, and, and you know, it's, I, I don't need to... When I say diminishing returns, like I'm already tweeting probably 10 times more than most people. So like I, I, I can scale back my tweets like by half and, and still <laughs> kind of benefit. Be super active. But, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, what exactly made me want to do YouTube? I think, 
I kind of did like some first principles analysis. Like I was just, so while I was having a Patreon and you know, I'm like, okay, I have a Patreon. Like, so I, I have a bit more creative freedom now and I can experiment with things. So I did some analysis. I'm like, okay, like, like where is the attention basically? Like where, what are people, you know, like from a very, very big picture point of view, like what's going on in the world. And then I look at, I look at, you know, Oh yeah. So I look at Patreon, right? So I have a Patreon. I have like a hundred patrons. That's pretty cool. And these are people who are paying me to tweet basically. Right. And I look at who are like the top Patreon accounts making the most money. And it's, it's invariably it's YouTubers and podcasters. Like they are the ones who are like, there's nobody like me who is on Patreon to tweet and they are making lots and lots of tweets and then they're getting, you know, 10,000, hundred thousand on Patreon. So if you want to get the hundred thousand on Patreon, like that's, you have to be a vlogger or a podcaster, like that kind of thing. And I have, you know, I know that there are people in emerging places in, like, you know, in Africa and in India, like there are all these people who are coming online and like they, they're not very text heavy. Like the, the, first, the first generation of people on the internet were very, very text heavy. They were basically library nerds who want like people like me. But like I look at my nephews, like my nephews and niece, like they are, they are, they are YouTube natives, you know, they don't even think about like, I don't know if they even think about the internet. They're just like, you know, I want the iPad to go on YouTube. Like, that's how they think about it. And I'm like, yeah. okay, like, that's where the action is in a sense. And so I tried it a little bit. And like, and I did like a book review. I did like a couple of talking head videos. And I think even the, the book reviews were interesting because people search, people use YouTube as a search engine almost. Like they go on YouTube and they search for stuff. And yeah. so the search traffic that you can get from YouTube, that's a big thing the recommendation, like you get recommended views and related videos. That's a, that's another big thing. So there is a consumer behavior on YouTube that I don't think Twitter can compete with, like in terms of like scale. And so, yeah, so just doing a bunch of that thinking and I just felt like I want to have, and you know, I guess I was, I was starting to build this very like grand, if you've seen my Twitter, there's like these very elaborate threads and it's kind of, it's kind of almost breaking the platform a bit. It's not a great user experience. It's just that, you know, I'm, it's, it's optimized for creators who want to build threads and connect with other people who want to build threads. But like, I've had friends kind of um, who, who are not on Twitter who tell me that their friends sent them a screenshot of some, send them like multiple screenshots of my tweets. And they're like, wow, like you're so famous on, on this platform. But like, it's very hard to read, you know, it's like that kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, so the, I know the content is good. It's good enough that it, it leaves the platform and people are sharing it. Like people are finding ways to share it in, in ways that kind of break a little bit. And I'm like, okay, so that thread should be, either it should be an essay or it should be a video. And yeah. it seems like videos are going to get, I mean, I'm going to do the essay as well, but it seems like the video is a frontier that, and, it's, and there's like this barrier to entry. That's, that's an interesting thing. It's like, people who are nervous about making videos, they just don't make videos, right? So there's this, there's this, you know, so I, I, during my research phase, I went looking around, like I would search YouTube for things that I care about. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, so there's, there are some videos that's like, it's a guy reading from a Wikipedia page, basically, and it has some pictures on it. And it has like 800,000 views on, on YouTube because it's just that. And um, yeah. Yeah, somebody's asking, what do I think about being a podcaster? You know, I... Should we bring up... Yeah, I think maybe it would be fun if people want to come up here and and ask questions live, like if, if anyone wants to do that. Yeah. I think Nathan Re- has the controls over who to invite the, up. There's like a raise hands functionality. So if you want to ask your question live, just like raise your hand. Um, and we'll see if anyone does that immediately. And I will ask them up. If not, we can just 
answer. By the way, I love this tweet that you tweeted a while ago, which says it costs nothing to encourage an artist and the potential benefits are staggering. Discourage an artist and you get absolutely nothing in return ever. Right. So true. It reminds me of my Zoom Bachelor Corgi experience a couple of weekends ago where Mm -hmm. I painted this painting live on, on national Twitch and Wow. And someone else dissed my corgi and I just absolutely hate him forever. Yeah. Rude. Right? And yeah. and it, it does nothing for people. Like it's it's so sad that people like you know a funny thing for me is that I, I came to the internet with such idealism. Like it's just like for me it's like like if you if you follow my stories, like libraries are awesome, books are great, the internet is a library, oh my god, awesome, we can like learn more stuff. Like it's just to me, I'm like, ah, oh, once everyone gets online, it's gonna be amazing. Everyone's gonna be sharing stuff all the time. It's like projecting my own thing. And then people now ask me, like, oh, how come you're so optimistic and you're so I'm like, I'm just that way, I guess. I did it didn't yeah. occur to me that that was uncommon, but I have been learning that the thing. Uh, so Shada's asked about Which being we got a Shada here. Shada, you Shada's can. Shada's up here. How's I'm it gonna going, close Shada? the window because there's a lawnmower. Fine, thanks. <laughs> Hello. Hi. How are you? So, fine, thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks good. for the show. Oh, thank you. So, I wanted to ask uh, about how do you think about creating like voice content? You know, it's mm-hmm. not. Uh, it's not that much content heavy and you know it doesn't have any it doesn't require any settings like youtube videos and it's right. not like tdl or lr like uh, tweets or blogs it's something mm-hmm. in between so how do you think about like being a podcaster or even casually producing voice contents right so i i do like so i i think of it as a spectrum so there's text and then there's voice and then there's video which includes voice right and so I, I, I was, I'm a text guy. Like that's my, that's my, my background. I, I'm very, very, I used to read a lot of books and so I'm very texty and I do like hanging out with people in real life and chatting and stuff. So I, I do have that as well. And, you know, I guess when I sat down to think about what should I be doing, I, I went kind of like the extreme end of opposite of text is uh, video. I do like, uh, and the, th- the thing that I love about video is that you can convey nuance with your body language and your vocal inflections that you can't in text. So there are things in text that, you know, can be misread, like by somebody who's reading, like you can say something like, so I have, I, I like to be cheeky. I like to say things that are funny, but there are things where if you put it in a tweet without like being very deliberate about emphasizing what your tone suppo- supposed to be, people can quote tweet it and, and interpret it as like you are saying it earnestly or whatever and like they will read whatever tone you want and I, I think the end result of that is that people don't even tweet things that are kind of complex in like in terms of emotional nuance and so what I want to start doing with my YouTube so I haven't actually gone all the way there yet but the goal is to start talking about more and more difficult things because you can see like the way a person kind of stresses and tr- like like they struggle to make a point you can see that they are not making it flippantly for example and that does come through in voice as well and you know i guess i am open to having like a podcast for example so i i can't so when i am prioritizing how many possible projects i can have i'm like okay i have my writing stuff and then i can do one new thing so i'm gonna do my my vlog 
I will be, no, I'm happy to go on other people's podcasts, which I've done a few times. And it's usually a good experience. I mean, it's always been a great experience, actually. And, you know, if somebody wants to start a podcast, I, I honestly, you know, there, there are jokes that are like, oh, you know, like there's enough podcasts. We have evolved past the need for podcasts. I think, again, it's, so there will, be, there will be a lot of people who start a podcast and then kind of give up after a, like six months or a year or something. And that's, you know, that's okay. Like as, as individual creators, it's okay to try something and then it's not for you and then you give up. Right. But like my approach is, if I'm going to start something, I want to be able to be confident that I'm going to be working on it for a very, very, very long time. And I just feel like uh, YouTube has that kind of longevity in a sense. I mean, I'm sure podcasts do as well. I mean, but uh, so for me right now where I am, I may get to a point where, you know, like my, my YouTube starts taking off and then like I have a large audience there and then it may make sense for me to, instead of publishing like new videos every day, I might want to start doing... I don't know, like one very in-depth, well-produced, well-researched video every month. And then I might do a podcast every week, like that kind of thing. But I don't yeah. want to, I'm, I'm, where I am right now, it's like, it's a full-time effort to, to vlog every other day or so and to write as much as I can. So I'm working on my eBooks. So it's like, I'm always making stuff and I don't want to have too many things on my plate. I already have more things on my plate than I can manage. But I do foresee a possible future where uh, I might like, have the full trinity and have like a blog video channel and a podcast and a writing. Totally. I find for podcasting that it's really hard to get top of the funnel. YouTube is and Twitter are much better for like showing your content to new people basically. And, and yeah. podcasts are like, once someone found you somewhere else, probably then, and yeah. they like your stuff, then. Mm-hmm. I oh, think Nathan, Nathan just, just froze, <laughs> but I could yeah, totally he's... complete a sentence. It's for audience engagement, not audience discovery. Yeah, oh, that's oh, that's such a beautiful way of putting it. That's true. Yeah, like YouTube is great for being discovered. Like people yeah. will watch a new video that they haven't seen. But generally, I think the the behavior pattern for people who want to listen to podcasts is you know they're driving maybe or they're doing the laundry and they want to listen to something that they know is good or like they already have interest in the the person. So yeah. Oh wow, Nathan's still frozen. <laughs> We can um, go to the next person. Ellen's here. Yeah. Ellen. Oh my gosh. My internet messed up. Can you hear me now and see me? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Welcome back, Nathan. Don't worry. I finished your thought for you because we've totally mind melted. Okay, great. Alan, welcome. <laughs> welcome up. Thanks so hey much. Hey guys, for- can, you, can you hear me or see me? I'm not yeah. sure. We I don't see you, but I you. And we can see awesome. your picture too. Well, great to, great to see you guys. I've actually been joined since the first one. So I love seeing them evolve and change and super interesting. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Visa, so I have a question just regarding Patreon. I know you, you were talking a lot about it. I'm curious to see if you, if you have noticed people supporting you on Patreon more to support you and your work in general or more transactional in the sense that they're joining to receive a perk or a benefit that you're offering them. Oh, I, I think in my case, like there's, there's like no perks, basically. Uh, the, I mean, the, the, okay. implicit, the, the implicit perk sort of is that you do get some of a backstage view and I guess you get more of direct access to me. So if anybody wants to ask me questions or if they want to, you know, I do talk about my process. So I think quite a few of my patrons are people who, you know, maybe they want to someday do some version of this and they want to hear from, like, you know, if there's, there's a class of content that's like, if I talk too much on Twitter about, like my plans for how I'm growing on Twitter and stuff, it can seem a bit 
I don't know, off taste or something. But like on, on Patreon, it's like, okay, here's my strategy. Here's my plan. Here's the content I'm going to do next month and the month after and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think they do like that content. But I, I, you know, I ask everybody who joins my Patreon, like, you know, why did you do it? Like what made you decide to want to become a supporter? And what are you hoping to see more of? Like, so I guess they, they can influence the content slightly, but practically everyone's like, oh, you know, I just like your stuff and I want to give back in some way and you should just do more of whatever you want to do. Like, that's my dominant uh, Patreon response. I, I have gotten a couple of like patrons who are like, oh, you know, this is just me kind of uh, being an early investor <laughs> in a sense so that next time if, when you make it big, like you, like then we'll figure something out. I don't know. I'm like, Remember okay, me when you're famous kind of a thing? Yeah, yeah, basically, basically, <laughs> which is cool. Yeah. yeah. I love, I think this is an awesome question to end on from Yue in the chat. He asks, was there a time when you felt like content creation wasn't worth pursuing, especially in Singapore's culture where artists are seen as non-essential? How did you overcome it? And I guess my personal extension of that question is like, yeah, what's, what's the most challenging part of doing what you're doing? Does it ever feel lonely? Have you ever thought about stopping? How am I not seeing the question in the chat? Oh, it's in the Q&A. It's Q &A, in the Q&A. Oh, where is it? We can invite How you. Do I see. Oh, can someone copy it? Here's you. Hi. Are we pronouncing Hello. your name right? Sorry. You can call me Jun. Jun. All right. Yeah, yeah. I'm from um, Singapore, so. Hello. Hi, hi. Yeah, so the question I'm um, like, like Legion just help me ask um, yeah it's because mm -hmm. I think I'm also trying to be in your position like I do want to create oh. content oh. full-time and cool yeah and I, I think there are some barriers to it which are both um, mm -hmm. in, uh, like in society and in myself as well that I'm trying to mm -hmm. kind of like unlearn and I felt um, I'm wondering if you had any of those and, and how did you actually overcome that especially when uh, the whole non-essential artist thing is is around like society and the, the perception of being an artist right that's a good question and let me think about it i think you know so i used to play in a band when i was about 17 and you know like local music in singapore is, is a very very <laughs> tiny scene it's not much support every year or so every other year you will get some thought piece from some very depressed artist who's like you know why isn't my country supporting me like why is there no audience why is like you know just that kind of that kind of thing and for context yeah. for people who are not familiar with singapore it's just you know we are a young country it's like it's like 50 something years old and you know we went through a period of kind of a the most important thing is the economy we are recovering from war and like we don't have like uh, you know poetry is a luxury we cannot afford you know the arts are frivolous like there's that kind of of mindset i think it's changing but that is that is the air that I breathed when I was growing up as well. And, you know, I think part of how I managed to break out of that was that I was reading so widely as a kid. So I was always, you know, like in the libraries, you don't just have local authors, like you have international authors. So I was reading, you know, Amanda Palmer or whoever, whoever is kind of making stuff in the world. And, you know, so I, I went through several cycles of being frustrated with my local context. Like, so I, I got frustrated as a local musician. I got frustrated as a local political blogger. I felt like in, in both of those cases, I felt like I was trying very, very hard. I was putting in more effort than what was like the, the average effort in those scenes. And I felt like I could see 
potential that nobody else seemed to be seeing or nobody else seemed to care or like when people would see it they might show some like like a little bit of support but then it's just you know it's like you need you need a big group of people to come together and and then sustain something and getting getting that kind of buy-in is is a challenge it's like a full-time job basically it's more than a full-time job you need multiple people to be working on it together and same for you know trying to build a startup ecosystem or build any kind of scene and I was discouraged about the local music scene. I was discouraged about the local political scene. But I always just felt that, I mean, I, to get a bit dramatic about it, I'm like, like, that's my reason for living in a sense. Like, I don't want to live in a world where, where I can't be creative. And I was comfortable, you know, even like, so when I was about 20, 22, maybe I was like, if I can only be like a part-time you know, like weekend musician sort of thing, like, and that's the way it's gonna be for the rest of my life. I'm like, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. You know, like it's, it's frustrating and sad, but I love the work more than the reward or support for it. So there is, there is a loneliness to it, but you know, the, the big thing is that we have a global, like we have the internet, and the internet is global, and you can reach people all over the world. And I would say that, you know, there's this, there's this thing called the, and it's not just Singapore. I've actually heard about this phenomenon in multiple countries. Um, I know Australians have it apparently, which is, which is interesting because a lot of Singaporeans do think about going to Australia as, as like a sort of escape. But like, um, you know, it's common with like former colonial states a lot of the time. And I've read about it with regards to chefs as well. So a common thing that happens, you know, in like Brazilian chefs and Indian chefs and like, like, like the most prestigious restaurants in those countries are like French restaurants, you know. Mm. Um, nowadays, there's like Japanese, there's like sushi and stuff. But like if let's say you're an Indian chef and you want to make fine dining of Indian food in India, you basically can't do it while you're in India because the, the average consumer, they want, if they want to experience fine dining, they want to try something that isn't local. They want to try something foreign and exotic and exciting. Mm. And if they want local food, they just want whatever is cheap, right? They want like, like I can get, you know, like, so if you make like, I don't know, like a really expensive biryani in India, right? They'll be like, oh, but I can get this cheap and good biryani for $5 here. I'm going to spend my $50 on, you know, some French food or whatever. And that would be really depressing for an Indian um, chef in India, right? For example. Mm -hmm. But so the, the trick is what I call like, and it's not just India, it's, it's Brazil, it's everywhere. It's like, you know, there's this sense, you know, and one of my favorite stories is from the Bible. There's a verse, I can't remember the specific, specific verse, but look it up. There's this part where Jesus is like a traveling, you know, he's a performing artist in a sense, you know, he's a traveling <laughs> messiah. He's a guy. Never thought of it that way, but yeah, totally. Right? He's, he's a, the original he's a influencer, traveling, right? right? He's, he's going the around original telling... influencer. I've, I've wanted to tweet this before, but I thought I would get canceled. But he's the original <laughs> content creator. Yeah. And there's this, there's this verse where he's having like this very successful tour until he gets to his hometown. And then in his hometown, people are like, that's that's a messiah like isn't that the carpenter's son like we saw him growing up he's just some clown like who cares who wants to hear what he has to say you know he's like like we've, yeah. we've seen him we've heard what he has to say he's, he's nothing interesting or special about that guy and so like in his hometown jesus could not perform miracles like you can look it up it's, it's the actual bible verse and you know that's that's kind of uh at some level it's it's humbling and it's like you know if jesus couldn't do it <laughs> i don't expect that i'm gonna impress like my hometown friends and so the trick, the trick, I call this slingshot theory, right? And in physics, 
when you want sometimes when you want to have a spacecraft like go really far in one direction really fast the trick is you can slingshot around a different planetary body and then like there's something about the way the grab it's called a gravity assist as well if you watch the martian they mention it and it's like you can slingshot around another planetary body and gain a lot of velocity and you know, it's the same for just when you're doing a slingshot right a literal stone in a sling like you can get really fast by going in the opposite direction for a while and then letting go and let that propel you and you know so i study you know like part of one thing to be successful in this sense is i've been studying the trajectories of famous artists and stuff and they very often you'll find that nobody becomes like a pop star global pop star sensation by trying to become a global pop star sensation in like a direct route you always almost always have to slingshot around something else so like if you take like a uh, lady gaga for example she's a fantastic example she knew you know so these days if you see her latest albums and like she has like this singer songwriter stuff this very heartwarming like the jolene is it jolene said her like she has a, she has a that, that kind of stuff she mm-hmm. acted in a star's born which is like this very traditional kind of Rex the Riches story. But if you look at her own story, that wasn't the path that she took, right? She started out being extremely weird. She was doing, first of all, she was doing dance pop music, which was very fashionable at the time. So she was, she was making stuff to fit the trends. And then if you would see her at like fashion shows and stuff, she was dressing really weird. She was, you know, had, had this meat dress, all kinds of weird shit. She stopped doing that after she's reached like, she, so she slingshotted around planet weird to get the, the, yeah mainstream acceptance similarly like again with like the local chefs very often what they have to do is they have to go and you know open an indian restaurant in new york right or a brazilian right. restaurant in new york and then you win awards and stuff there then when you come back they're like oh award-winning person from here wow they're so great right and then totally. you can come back you know imagine like sundar pichay or you know one of the the indian tech ceos if they were growing at home in their home city states and they were doing their local startups and then they were trying to give talks and stuff like people will be like who cares but once you become the ceo of like someone in the valley right and then now when you come back everyone's like obsessed with you there is a sadness to this i think that people don't see the value of something until other people elsewhere recognize it right. but if you want to you know if you care about how do you kind of kickstart a scene like there is very much this element of you have to seek success in a different domain so now i have singaporeans like asking me like hey i saw that you were in the valley and you were giving a talk and people were interested like how do i make friends with people in the valley i'm like now you now you care <laughs> right uh, but but yeah so my my thing is early on i think well you have to ask yourself what kind of creative work you want to do and i would say try and find some niche in an international space that is still pretty small enough that a focused person can can build an audience so like uh one of my so i have a bunch of like alts on twitter and you know you can go on like different subreddits stuff is that one of them no <laughs> <laughs> un- un- unfortunately I wish, I wish i wish it was i wish it was but yeah, you can find some, you know, so it's entirely possible that VC Braggs could be someone who's not even in the States, right? It could be someone in, in Nigeria, for all you know. It's possible, right? And so you could be someone who gets some amount of international acclaim by working on a problem. I mean, when I say problem, like even with content, right? Like your content can attempt to solve a certain problem that there is an international audience for, but it's niche. And then once you get really good at filling out that niche, like whether it's, I don't know, whatever your interests are. I have a friend who's been tweeting about like beef, right? And you can tweet about beef anywhere in the world. You can, you can have like a cooking show yeah. from wherever you are in the world. You can have like a, 
like a YouTube channel that's about like so again like there's a ton of cooking shows already on YouTube but if you have something sufficiently niche like you're the beef guy I don't know like you have to you have to figure out what that is and then you build that audience and then people will be curious about oh like this you know and I'm I'm always curious to find just local news that's newly interested in someone who has some international attention I have I have like I think that I might have like a Rome page with a bunch of links about that, but mm. I digress. I mean, the the point is that yeah, that's that's the move. Like you can't win over. A, I mean, you can try. Like you shouldn't you shouldn't feel like a like a defeated chip on the shoulder kind of like you you shouldn't resent the local audience, right? You shouldn't like it's just the the nature of the game. Like you have to build your audience where there are people who are interested, and finding people who are interested. Very often, like the the local scene isn't it, so you have to find some niche, and yeah, I mean, if, if, and you have to start with yourself. You have to start with what what you really really care about, and yeah, you know, like so sometimes there's a thing where people say nobody cares, but like you can refute that instantly if you care. So as long as you care about what you're writing and you want to see what happens next and you want to see the work done, then like nobody can say that nobody cares, right? Because right, you totally. Care. And, once, totally. and once you care, you can find at least one other person somewhere who cares. And once you have two people, you know, you could do a video chat or a vlog or whatever. And then you try and find one more person. And then you have, it's, really, it's really slow and tedious to build an audience one person at a time. But in my opinion, it's like the most robust way to, to build anything, basically. And then, yeah, once you, have like, once you have like 50 to 100 people interested in something, then other people are interested because the first group of people were interested. So it's very slow and it tedious, but, but right. it can be done. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Yes. We, we're we're, we're a little we bit past the time. Yeah, totally. We're a little bit past the time. We normally try and keep it to like pretty, pretty close to an hour, but this has been awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, uh, Visa, so Visa, much for cheers. being here. Yeah, this Thank is, you guys I feel for like we could, we could go another probably hour. questions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I've right. also I also love having people actually ask questions with their voices too rather than just text. So I think that'll become a staple from from here on out. But yeah, Visa, thank you so much for, for doing this. It's been awesome. awesome. I had Have fun. a great long weekend, everyone. All right. Bye. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.